Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Underscore Podcast, where interviewers become interviewees. Why the people behind the facts are writing the facts with our first ever celebrity special guest, Leona O'Neill. Hello, Leona. Hi, Simon. I'm totally not a celebrity. <laughs> but I'll take it. I'll take it for today. I, didn't, I noticed we didn't have any red carpet or there was no champagne, so I don't know. I'm maybe a part-time celebrity, Mama, or... I don't know. Our shit alone doesn't cover that. <laughs> she doesn't. Don't think the studio would be too happy if we brought champagne in. Well, I don't know. don't know. So we'll fire into the questions. So firstly, just what's your name and a little bit of background about your time in journalism? Yeah, so my name is Leona O'Neill. I have been a journalist for oh, 23, 23 years, I think 23, 24 years now. And um, I started off in the Newry Democrat in, in Newry. I don't know if any, any of you guys are from Newry, but uh, the Newry Democrat, a very local uh, newspaper. I did a, a course in Belfast, in uh, what was Belfast uh, Institute of Further and Higher Education. I think it's Belfast Met now. This, was, oh, this yeah. is way back in the olden days, <laughs> black and white. And it was the only real journalism course there available at the time. It was before we, we started up here. And uh, always wanted to be a journalist. My dad was very interested in the news, very interested in current affairs and politics. He was a history teacher in, really? uh, in a secondary school in, in Straban, yeah. And uh, he was also in a, um, very much involved in the civil rights movement. So he yeah. was basically in the books that he was teaching from, pictures of him in the, in the books and stuff. And uh, so he was always... And, and also when we were growing up, the Troubles were, were raging. I was born into the Troubles. So Daddy would have put on the news every night uh, to see what the... You know what the latest horrible stuff, grim yeah. stuff had been happening. So I was kind of brought up on that. And he always read The Guardian and... The Observer and the the Belfast Telegraph and stuff like that and the Dairy Journal and so I grew up around all that and I loved the news and I saw people like Kate Eddy you know reporting from various mm-hmm. war zones one of which was the bog side you yeah. know just up the street from us so uh, always really interested in, in journalism from that so I I went to the the, the study journalism and then I went straight into the Newry Democrat and this was. This was kind of at the very, it wasn't the tail end of the Troubles, the Troubles were still kind of raging a bit. And uh, so I found myself, from being from Derry, living in Belfast, travelling in Uri every day. They, yeah. They kind of, oh, Nuri? Oh my God, Nuri. I thought you lived up there. No, I didn't know. I lived in Belfast at the time, as I say, from Derry, oh, I lived in Belfast. And, um, as long as you were driving to Derry, Nuri, that's so long. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> that would be insane. I know, definitely no, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. But I, I would have spent my time, you know, as a very young journalist, like you guys are now, kind of up mountains, uh, in the snow with you know we, we only really had a notebook and pen in those days uh, reporting on you know Sinn Féin were holding rallies at the army bases in, in, in Newry and uh, so they would roll a big lorry up there in the middle of nowhere up mm-hmm. literally up a mountain and uh, and I'd have to stand there for an hour and write down what the people say and my hands would be blue and my pen would stop working because it was oh, like Lord. snowing on it and but it was really great, um, really great experience. And then I went on and I moved to Belfast, uh, newspaper, Anderson News in West Belfast. And I spent a good few years there. Really fantastic, another fantastic training ground and um, covered mm. really tough stories. Um, you know, this was at the tail end of the Troubles when the murders were still happening. So you yeah. have to, you know, you guys now are dealing with things like... Um, you know, if, if someone someone passes away, their their relatives put stuff, you know, maybe a photograph or a tribute up yeah. on social media and it's quite it's easier to get access to that and perhaps ask them for, for that. 
uh, we had to go knock on doors and ask for a picture of the person who was just murdered and it was really tough going um, but it builds character and it builds suppose, resilience yeah. and um, then from there I went to Irish News then I moved back to Derry I, I set up several magazines I ran a 24 hour news website um, before they were before they were even kind of um, popular I suppose um, you know we've got Belfast Live those 24 hour rolling news things I, I was doing that a couple of years before anybody uh, had even thought of that so um, what else did I do I then I worked for Belfast Telegraph <clears throat> worked for Belfast Telegraph for a number of years really great paper really great opportunities that they, they gave me in the Belfast Telegraph and I um, I freelanced with them, then I started field producing for Al Jazeera and Vice News and ABC and CBC and a lot of international um, news organisations because of it, I had raised my profile so much because yeah. I had I was kind of in the Belfast Telegraph and that kind of leaves you in a bit of a, puts you in a bit of a platform then people were asking me to, to, to field produce for them so I've basically worked for people all over the world and um, worked as a freelancer, worked as a staffer worked as uh, editor, the, the whole works, the whole kind of myriad of jobs that you can have within journalism, I probably have done them. So I know where you guys are coming from and trying to find, you know, your wee, your wee niche or the yeah. thing that you really love. I've worked uh -huh. on radio and stuff as well and as well on TV. So, um, and then I uh, decided I wanted to come in and uh, I wanted to do something else. I kind of felt, you know, I wanted to leave journalism. I wanted to leave the field because I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s. You guys are all coming in here. There are plenty of fantastic journalists I wanted to hand the, the torch to. And, um, you know, plenty of fantastic journalists I wanted, wanted to hand the torch to and kind of give them a chance to, you know, have the adventures and meet the extraordinary yeah. people and, and do the extraordinary things and give people voices. And and uh, so I stepped back and decided I, I would um, come in here and light a spark and young journalists <laughs> and help you guys find the way and hopefully light the path a wee bit for you and help others light the path for you. And so... What is it like being a female journalist in what's stereotypically a male-dominated profession? Which is what I'm actually doing my dissertation on sexism in journalists yeah. in the media and online. So like, it'd be really interesting to hear. <laughs> Brilliant. It, it is a, quite a male-dominated profession, I suppose. Yeah. It's, um, you know, when you look at the, the pictures of old, of, you know, the, the you see the pictures of the guys with the, the hats and the press um, signs yeah. coming out of them, or you look at Fleet Street... Um, from even the sixties and seventies, it tends to be all men. It tends to be mm -hmm. all men there doing the, yeah. the 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 kind of role, and there are there are places that people can work that you know. Um, I'm not saying I worked in any of them, but there are places that people can, women can work that they're not taken seriously. Yeah, I have had people say to me in job interviews, uh, "You can't do breaking news uh, because you're a mother." and uh, and do what I said <laughs> do you want to watch me yeah. I will do breaking news and I will also do better breaking news than this organisation yeah. so I and, and then I did <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know it's it's you're constantly pushing when you're a female in this profession you're constantly pushing back against that um, you know macho I don't know if the word macho is, is the right yeah. word to use but that kind of male dominated yeah. kind of environment it's not as it's not as as bad as it was 20 years ago now they're really strong female journalists holding their own mm -hmm. not, not just holding their own but really shining their lights 
the likes of you know Alison Morris in the Belfast Telegraph and Suzanne um, Breen in the in the Belfast Telegraph as well. So many Susan McKay. I mean yeah. all the, the the television journalists and the radio journalists as well. Really. Um, you know, they probably, as the same as anybody else, had to fight their way through all this, um, all these challenges. But they, but they got there. One thing I would say about being a, a female journalist is, um, you get far more abuse online. You get far mm-hmm. more abuse in the street, um, from kind of you know bullies that want to stop you from mm-hmm. using your your journalism to kind of shine a light on something perhaps that's not that's not then that's not good or that they don't want you to do that, um. And I found that myself, you know, with uh, a lot of abuse that I got online, you know, the, the likes of Trish Devlin, uh, we, we all kind of banded a wee bit together for safety, I suppose. But the likes of Trish Devlin, who works for the Sunday World, and the abuse that she gets online is... Oh, it's is horrendous, un- yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And Alison Morris as well, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. just as ridiculous that the whenever people are, are, are being abusive to female journalists, they go straight to their their family or they go straight to what they look like or really personal insults. And male journalists don't seem to get as much. Mm-hmm. They do get, don't, don't get me wrong, they do get abuse and they yeah. do get threats and same as everyone else. But it seems to be um, the female journalists have a, a, a tsunami of abuse mm-hmm. almost um, on a regular basis. So I suppose that's the, the difference. Yeah, it's so interesting because it's like so prominent still, like sexism and yeah, media. Yeah, I um, Even, and it was like progressed so much, but like it's still so prominent. Yeah, it does. It's kind of like you have to kind of constantly fight back. And I don't know if guys have to do uh, that. You constantly have to keep, um, you know, fighting back. It's, it, 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 was, it, it was a serious problem years ago where yeah. females were just not taken seriously. Mm-mm. Females can't. I mean, you look at the likes of Kate Eady and other kind of war reporters out there and, and going into the same arena as male reporters, um, you know, they were they were treated in a different way mm-hmm. and they were even, you know, thought of thought of in a different way. Or even recently, Aoife Grace Moore there was um people were saying something online about Aoife Aoife Grace, um she's a, a journalist from Derry, she's based in Dublin mm-hmm. and they had suggested that she had um you know, I've slept with someone to get a story and things that got to be oh said God, to me yeah. and things that got to be said to other uh, journalists, female journalists as well and something that got wouldn't be said to a, a male, a male I journalist. Know, you just don't hear it. You know, how did yeah. you get that story? Well, you obviously didn't get it on skill and talent. You actually got it on because you slept with someone or it's like, you know, it's a 1970s called and they want their opinions back. I know. It's just it's yeah. ridiculous. So on the topic of abuse, well, not really on the topic of abuse, but how did you cope as a journalist with PTSD? Yeah, so I uh, I got PTSD after uh, it was two thousand and nineteen. Two thousand nineteen, I was standing in in Craigan in in April around Easter time, and I was standing beside Lyra McKee, the fellow my fellow journalist. Um, I was covering a riot up there, and Lyra had had come up as well, and um, so I stand beside her when she was shot dead by by dissident Republicans, and that was a really uh, traumatic thing to actually witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it would any human being sort of seeing another human being, uh, you know, like that, and something happened to them like that is is really really traumatic. And then after that, um, just dealing with that trauma, and then after that, 
I was um, targeted for intimidation by dissidents. Um, my name was sprayed on the wall, and I was, you know, it was just constant abuse online and constant abuse and abuse in the street as well. Mm-hmm. And then also conspiracy theorists. Whenever something like that, uh, that like Lyra's um, death, Lyra's murder, that was a worldwide event that was shared everywhere on the world. It was on CNN. It was on Sky and stuff like that. And whenever something like that happens, uh, a, a large scale event. Event, uh, not a large scale event, but like a, um, a, I don't know how to describe it, a world, a world event like that, like a journalist being shot dead on the street, uh, and a well known journalist as well. Um, it attracted in all these conspiracy theorists, mm-hmm. and so these conspiracy theorists, they put together this, this, some of these people from Canada and from Dublin and stuff like that. They put put together this video, um, of all my footage of that night, and they were asking, and I had I'd, I'd interviewed Nancy Pelosi that morning, and they came to they put two and two together and they got fifty two and they yeah. um, they uh, put it out there that I, because I had interviewed Nancy Pelosi that day and she was. They, they think she's in the Illuminati or something that I had somehow murdered Lyra to as, as a sacrifice to Nancy Pelosi oh my god um and I was in the Illuminati and I was an MI5 and I was on and all this absolute uh, insane. mad insane stuff that yeah. any reasonable rational person would think oh, that's like you know okay how do you yeah. even come up with that how do you, how do you come up with that yeah. and also yeah unicorn is like the president of the world and yeah alien. that's that sort of stuff like, it doesn't insane. It, it's just totally insane but what what happened with that? That was they said it was also they said it was a false flag and that I was hiding Lyra and it's just complete mad stuff that you would normally think oh, wow. this is absolutely mad, but so I had kind of I had witnessed someone being murdered. I was getting abuse and um, intimidated and harassed by the yeah. people who actually murdered her, and then the third strand of that was these conspiracy theorists who threatened they they set me on fire, stabbed me um kill my children oh my all this absolutely mad stuff and it wasn't just they weren't in Canada they weren't in in, in Dublin they were in my own home city yeah so what happened was that I was kind of uh, I was on a situation I was totally traumatized by what I saw I was traumatized by the threats coming from dissident circles and I was th- traumatized by these people who were I had to go to police the police about several people uh, locally who um, from my own city who were threatening to hurt me and um, constantly looking over my shoulder, constantly feeling really hyper vigilant, and it just, it just kind of, it just got to me. It really, it just broke me to be honest with yeah. you. Yeah. It just really, it, it just broke my soul, I suppose. And I, I knew that, um, I knew that I needed help because I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep for a year, and um, I suppose the way the PTSD affected me was. Uh, total insomnia I couldn't sleep after Lear McKee was murdered I didn't sleep for about maybe six days and I almost went insane at, at that time I just could not every time I closed my eyes I could see her face and um, and then the, all the stuff on top of that on top of it just kept building up and I just it just completely broke me and I I um, I went to uh, I went to a counselor. I went to a trauma counselor who said you have PTSD. Mm-hmm. You know this is something has happened here, and uh, you are this is a normal human experience response to that. Yeah. And so I I got the the effects of PTSD were for me were just not being able to sleep. If I was able to sleep, I had really really bad nightmares, night terrors. I would wake up in the middle of the night. I couldn't breathe. Um, because I just had this vision in my head constantly of that poor, poor girl on the street. 
and uh and just anxiety attacks panic attacks constant anxiety and panic and um and that's the way that it affects me and i think mm-hmm. some people think ptsd is just something that soldiers get you know when they come back from war and and they're, they they go mad or, yeah. or you know this kind of um notion of ptsd is, is very strange but my experience of it was 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 different it was just um it was just really intense anxiety and panic and and um, hypervigilance and um, and it all was born from just you know just all those kind of pressure points coming from me from different angles and from the trauma that I that I've seen but you know I, I have dealt with it I how did I cope with it I, I went to trauma counseling firstly and um, I, you know, this was just in the first weeks after uh, Lear was murdered. I went to trauma counselling. To be honest with you, I, I paid for it privately because it's quite difficult to access that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, either through your, your, your doctor, but the, it is there. I don't yeah. want anybody to think that it's not there. That, that your GP is the first place you go to if you have uh, issues like this. But I, uh, I wanted to be seen quickly because I was a mother of four children. I could feel myself kind of falling apart a bit. I could feel myself not being able to cope. Um, just in day to day things, I would I wouldn't feel like I could go out and do my job because I was afraid, and I, that had never happened to me before in twenty three years of journalism. I feared nothing. I mean, yeah. I would have walked into and I did walk into riot situations. I had no fear. I would have walked straight up to people and and asked them things. I would have I've spoken to murderers. I've spoken to presidents, politicians. I had no fear whatsoever in doing my job, and for the first time, I had a fear. You know, I I just. Um, I remember um, two or three weeks after Lear was murdered, there was another, there was an incident in um, in Craigan beside where she was murdered, and I, I went and got into my car as I normally did, and I went up and I went to cover it, and um, I drove to the scene. I remember it was like really raining. And I remember just sitting thinking, I wonder should I put on, Craigan at the time was a wee bit maybe volatile because of this had happened and there was there was attacks on the police and stuff. And I just remember thinking, I wonder should I put on my flak jacket? And it's just like, what, this is Craigan? This is kind of, I grew up on these streets, what yeah. the hell? And then a siren, a, 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 a police Land Rover drove past really quickly and my window was down a wee bit because I was recording some radio stuff, the window was down a bit, and the sound of the siren, it was really, really weird. The sound of the siren, just like a wrench, just pulled me right back to that street in Craig and that night when Lear was being put under the back of the, the Land Rover. So I was in my car, and I was covering... Um, it was a, a, a bomb scare, I think it was in Craig and, and um, I had my window down. The siren of the, the police uh, vehicle kind of was driving past, and the siren just just wrenched me back to that night in Craigan when mm-hmm. Lear was being put into the back of the Land Rover and driven away and none of us there knew you know if she would be okay or not and I just um, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks just you know this is like three or four weeks after what had happened happened and it just hit me like a ton of bricks sitting there in my car waiting for I was supposed to be going live in six minutes with a radio station in the south and I just started to cry and I cried and cried and cried and I, I had a panic attack, I couldn't breathe and I was kind of gripping onto the steering wheel and I just had the the, the, the words of um, of people online basically in my head sort of saying she's she's a crap reporter, she's a, t- she's a sorry for the bad language, she's a terrible reporter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she can't, you know, she's weak she's this and stuff like that and that's what I just thought that was going through my head and I was just really um 
just a, a moment I was thinking I can I even do this anymore can I do this job and it it, it passed and I it was a panic attack just it was a really bad panic attack and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't particularly nice but I got out of the car and I went and I uh, was live on on the radio <laughs> and I remember um the the radio station is right you're you're live now and you're talking live yeah. and stuff and I didn't hear the guy or the guy the the police officer the ATO person didn't say hardcover or we're going to explode this you know this um you know a controlled explosion yeah they didn't they didn't say that but I was I was on live and the the controlled explosion went up it wasn't too far from me but I was still in cover I was in this wee alleyway and it just it shook the foundations of the house and on live on air. I said I didn't say a bad word, but I took the Lord's name in vain, and um and I would never have done that. I would yeah. never I would never have said you know, geez, let's let's just say I said that geez, um live on air. I would always been more composed. I would never have sat in my car crying before getting out of a yeah. you know at a story. And I just thought you know what I need I need help here. I need to, I need someone to you know pull put me back together again. And I went to trauma counselling. This is how I suppose I coped, and I um. I, I I paid forty pound basically to sit in a, a in a counselor's office and basically cry for an hour, and then then say jury o mm-hmm. and come back the next week and cry for an hour and I think that's maybe just what I needed and yeah and um I did that for a while and we obviously we talked as well and stuff and yeah. we tried to work things out but uh, I went to counselling um as well and I still uh, you know I still find it very difficult that's why we had to stop a second ago I still find it very difficult to talk about yeah about that that time and I suppose healing from something like that's not going to be completely linear it's going to be you're going to go all over the place and you're going to maybe things will pull you down and the anniversary is coming up now and it's obviously not not a um a nice time no. and, and um you know different things come up in the court case and that also brings you back there and it's kind of you know there is really no escaping from it but I do realize that and so counselling and um, looking after myself and also talking about it I find um, I can talk about it with my friends and uh, my yeah. family and that uh, helps me deal with that type of stuff and talking about it here with you guys you know I know it's it's difficult for me to talk about but the more I talk about it yeah. the more I think that you know other people will talk about issues that maybe are affecting them or some you know I, I talk about things like I have panic attacks. I'm a 46-year-old mother of four children who was a hard-nosed reporter and have had this long career. And I've done all these really sort of good... done a lot of really good stuff and really exciting stories, but I still have panic attacks, and I want other people to know, you know, it's all right to have panic attacks. It's a completely normal reaction to something that's happened in your life, whatever it is. It might not be as dramatic uh, quite as, as, as something that I have experienced, but it's still dramatic in, in your life and I, I want people to know that it's completely normal and it can be dealt with and it has been dealt with and I, I just finished counselling there about uh, at Christmas time actually oh, really? before Christmas time yeah I was in counselling for a good good year and a half yeah. and it really really helped me and it made me think about things a wee bit differently and um and you know I've embraced things like yoga. I'm telling I was I tell you as well to do yoga, and I, you know, I tell other people yoga is just fantastic and meditation and self care. Yeah. My husband yeah. often says to me, and like I was crystals. the, you know, if you look in the back of my car, there was a flak jacket and a hard hat, and there was, you know, big boots and you know all weller coats, and yeah. I would have, you know, I would have have no qualms. I had no fear. And now he sees me and I'm like, I'm in the room and I'm doing yoga and I'm like, hum, and I've got all these crystals and there's, and he buys me crystals for Christmas and, 
and um, I'm a completely different person. I, I suppose I had to go through that fire to become that different person, but mm-hmm. but I am um, I am a different person, and from uh, you know from those experiences, they were they were awful and terrible and and horrible. But I hope that you know maybe listening to me, people listening to me here might you know if they're going through something really awful in their life and there's nothing but sort of darkness around them or. Um, yeah. that there is light you know and there is mm-hmm. a you know you can't find a way back from that and you can't find your voice again and you can't find your strength again you just have to reach out for help and, and try and also to help yourself you know yeah that's amazing I think um, the next question was about you're breaking the stigma around mental health but you sort of answered that no, and I mean I can I can talk a wee bit more more about that. Uh, if you want of course. Yeah, go ahead and ask me the questions or not. So it's hard to how do we break the stigma surrounding mental health and PTSD in the journalism world? So talking about it, I think, is a is a way they they break the stigma. You know, all these things that happen in the shadows, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about shadows, I'm talking about in newsrooms. Newsrooms are quite macho uh, environments still yeah. even in two thousand twenty two and and um the, the it's very much a case of you have to just get on with it you know people people have have got ptsd and people have got anxiety and people have got depression from things um far less dramatic than what happened to me um you know covering inquests has has kind of impacted on people covering um the very grim um, conveyor belt of news um, constantly yeah, so kind of mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. conveyor belt of grim mm-hmm. stories um, every single day and, and you know if you're if you're covering hard news if you're doing a hard news beat or you're covering court cases or um, you're covering crime you know you're it's, you're constantly dealing with quite quite um, grim stories and the the kind of underbelly of life I always think that even before the you know the what happened with Lyra McKay I always thought. I, every city that I go to that I live in, I am only seeing the underbelly of it, the horrible stuff, the mm-hmm. crime, the the court cases, the, the the bad news that is happening, and I'm not seeing other things. So it's taint, tainted my kind of vision of that place in Belfast and Newry and everywhere else that I've, that I've lived, and Derry as well. And um, it can kind of get you down, and people don't realise it, and the newsroom environment kind of almost tells journalists you have to deal with this. Just get the story done and get on with the next one. Don't process it, um, which I don't think is healthy whatsoever. So I am, I'm always talking about. I might not talk about it as much in, as in depth as I have done with you guys today, but I'm always talking about. We need to change our new our newsroom mindsets. That you know things will impact on our journalists and yeah. that they need to talk about that they need to process that they need to also have emotional flak jackets it's grand having a flak jacket when you're going out into a, an actual physical flak jacket that will stop you know knives and, and, and bullets and stuff but we also need to have an emotional flak jacket for our young journalists in particular going into that environment knowing that they're you know you will deal with stories that will have an impact on you and that is completely okay talk about it process it process it with people there if you you need help you get you know you go to this person or that person and that's the kind of stuff that I want to um to really promote and, and nurture you know like nurture a really good um uh just mental health awareness in newsrooms and it's not actually it's not there at the moment mm-hmm. um because people kind of I suppose people when you think of journalists people think hard-nosed journalists and yeah. tough war reporters and mm-hmm. you know when a lot of them I've, I've written a book about this and a lot of these hard-nosed kind of tough war correspondents 
um, they reach a certain age or they move away from that environment and they completely they just break you know yeah. and they, they can't cope anymore um, there's a lot of underlying PTSD in, in, uh, in the industry and it needs dealt with because what we want is, is strong and um, strong journalists who can thrive in, uh, in, in an environment and whose um, you know skills and uh, light is, is nurtured and they're not kind of you know they're not burning out when they're in their form. So you've done little bits of, uh, politically, so I just wanted to know, is it possible to be politically neutral as a political journalist? Yeah, you have to be politically neutral. You have to be neutral as, if we take out the words politically in that sentence or in that question you just asked me, Simon, there, you have to be neutral as a journalist. doesn't matter if you're, if you're you know, reviewing cars or you're, you're, you're a gardening correspondent or you're a political correspondent. You have to be constantly neutral. Um, you know, I, I, I've done bits and pieces of, of political stuff, but you have to be, and I always tell my guys as my students this, you have to be friends with, not friends now, but you have to be friendly to everyone. Yeah. You can't, you have to leave your political, take out the words political in that, yeah. in that question, and you, you have to be neutral as a journalist. Yeah, in you, general. Yeah. yeah, in general, whether you're a gardening correspondent, mm. whether you're a motoring correspondent, whether you're a political correspondent, and I would always tell my guys be friendly with everyone, all political persuasions, and and uh, just everyone because you have a job to do. And if you think about it, if you are um, hostile to one political party, mm-hmm. then you'll get nothing from them. That impa- that impacts on you. That impairs you from doing your job properly. So if you're very friendly with one political organisation, other political parties will uh, notice this and they will think that you're biased. They won't work with you. So that, again, impairs your work. So you have to be uh, neutral as a political journalist. And I always tell my guys that you leave, leave all, all your, your political, political beliefs. You, you leave all your political beliefs. You leave all your... You almost, you almost stop being a citizen whenever you become yeah. a journalist. You can't... Um, you can't join in a protest. You can't hold yeah. a placard. You have to kind of stand aside from mm-hmm. from these things, these kind of campaigns that perhaps you were involved in before, um, like you know, pro life, pro choice, LGBT, um, all that type of stuff. You have to leave it at the at the yeah. door of the newsroom and be completely neutral. Um, and I always use the kind of um, the example of. Um, Whenever they were, uh, they were decriminalising abortion. I think it was the day up in Stormont, and Stormont, if you're familiar with it, the big sort of long driveway yeah. that goes up to it. And on one side of the of the, the this laneway or this driveway, there was pro-choice people with their placards and stuff. On the other side of it was pro-choice people, and. Um, as a journalist, I had to go over and speak to the pro-life people and get let them, because you need the two sides of the story. Pro-life people get there, be respectful of them and of their opinions and just record it as a witness, as a journalist, mm-hmm. and think nothing of it. Go over to the other side and, and talk to the pro-choice people, respect their opinions and just record it, give no yeah. opinion, and then tell a story and let people, you know, let the readers, let the listeners, let the viewers make up their own mind. That's the job of a journalist. It's not the job of a journalist to go over to the pro-life people and be hostile to them because you think that their views are awful or, or whatever and then go over to the pro-choice people and, and be friendly with them because you think their choice you wouldn't get a good story with that you would get a very mm-hmm. unbalanced biased story 
and flip it around and be sort of, you know, are you hostile to the pro-choice people and then you're friendly with the pro You just wouldn't get a good story. Um, so in order to do your job properly as a journalist, you have to leave all that stuff, all your baggage, you have to leave it at the door and just become a witness to things. If you're a, a political journalist or a news journalist, straight up facts. No, uh, you don't colour it with your own politics. And, you know, you see it happen from, from time to time, but people then... Um, dig themselves under a bit of a trench. Yeah. You know, you dig yourself under under a bit of a trench where you're you're giving opinions on things or you're uh, talking about um, certain political things, and you'll never be able to move anywhere except from that place. So you don't you don't hamper your um, ambitions by nailing your colors colors to your to your chest or um, yeah. So. Uh, is it possible to be politically neutral as a political journalist? Yes, it is. You yeah. have to be. You have to be. Do you find it really difficult or just used to it now, do you think? Yeah. No, I'm so used to it that I'm, yeah. not, I'm not actually a journalist anymore, but I still would... Uh, I, I still would... Wouldn't go to, you know, a march or a campaign. I would still... I would find great difficulty yeah. in taking, taking part in something like that because yeah. even if I very much strongly believed in it, I would find great difficulty not being a sort of standing on the sidelines and just witnessing yeah. it and actually taking yeah. part in it. And it's even it, it's it's so strange that even um, I remember this this was I felt very keenly some very prominent member of the political community died, and I uh, I went to the funeral and or sorry the the, the wake of the, this person and someone said to me, "Are you here doing a story?" And I'm like, I'm here as a civilian. Yeah. I'm here as a sort of normal. I'm, of course, I'm not. I'm, I haven't got my notebook out. I'm not taking pictures. It's yeah. kind of I'm here as a normal human being. But it's it's kind of like you can't really be a normal human being when you're a journalist. You kind of have yeah. to. Um, everybody always thinks that you're on. At work 24 hours a day. At work 24 hours a day. I mean, yeah. so I was arguing with someone the other day on Twitter who's saying that I wasn't compassionate to people who were anti-vax. And <laughs> in my in my reporting, yeah, and I was like, "Can you point me to the, the a, a story where I'm not compassionate to uh, you know a, yeah. a new story where I'm not compassionate to people or that I came out and I said this or whatever and I couldn't because I thought that it was what I said on Twitter yeah. was the news, mm-hmm. what I said on Twitter was my journalism, what I said on Twitter was kind of you know gospel. This is what has been. This is a newspaper. I don't yeah. understand it, and that's people's mindset. I suppose when you open your mouth at all. We think you're a journalist, so you're, yeah. you know, <laughs> when it's when it's in the paper, that's when it's journalism. When it's me talking rubbish on Twitter, <laughs> talking about my dinner or my dog or, um, you know, things like that, that's not journalism. That's just me, rabbit on on Twitter. Well, everything to be like fact checked and like I know, it's just... like you're not allowed to tweet anything. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what it's like. So, but I, but I would still be of that mindset, and I probably will until the day I die be in that mindset that I kind of. I'm, I, I wasn't a citizen for so long and I had to be very careful about yeah. what I said. So, Why did you decide to become a lecturer? So I was talking earlier on about the sort of the PTSD and the trauma and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that I felt after uh, Lear McKee uh, was murdered. And then I, um, I also was getting serious harassment on, uh, on the streets of my, my city. My city's Derry. It's not a big... My husband's from Belfast and he calls it just it's a big village. He just thinks it's a big, <laughs> you know, farm, farm sort of... Uh, yard, but um, <laughs> Belfast, such a Belfast <laughs> I know, but he he sort of so Derry is a is like a village, and everybody knows one another there. Yeah, and um, 
I was getting such uh, harassment and intimidation just from people. People emailing me, telling me that, you know, they were going to beat me up if I went to a certain area, that oh I wasn't Lord. allowed into yeah. a certain area. And there was things sprayed in the wall uh, of certain areas to kind yeah. of warning me not to go in there. And I was kind of like I was telling you about that sort of time in the car where I kind of, you know, broke down a bit. And that was occurring more regularly um, where I had a fear, not just for myself, but for my children. Yeah. Um, I have four kids and I, I, you know, I had to take precautions in my house and I had to look under my car and stuff like that. And the police had warned me about about various things and to take my security seriously. I had to change my route to work and and um and all that type of stuff and i just i remember thinking one day even before the job here came up and just thinking i i don't want to do this anymore yeah. this is just not it's not it's it, it what happened completely broke me and i um i have no heart in it anymore at no. all and i just thought I, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and just uh, do something else. I've always loved uh, being in the classroom with guys. And before I came here, I was teaching in the English department. So oh really? I, yeah. I was teaching some just sort of sporadically over there, and I absolutely loved it. I loved yeah, the buzz. Just, that I, um, I love the buzz of getting standing in front of people and seeing people young people in particular who are very enthusiastic and they yeah. they are eager and they're passionate mm-hmm. and and. Um, you know, and that's so infectious, and I loved that. So yeah, I loved, I loved being in the classroom. And then I, I saw this job come up, and uh, I'm very much a believer in, in fate as well. And I, I just think I had reached a point where I had just had enough yeah. of. I'm not saying journalism was bad. I loved journalism. I wouldn't yeah. have done it, and I wouldn't have put so much into it if I uh, hadn't loved it so much. But I had just reached the point where. I had no peace on mm-hmm. the streets, absolutely no peace yeah. on the streets where, you know, I would be out covering a job and, and someone would come up and start screaming on my face and it would make me feel really anxious. Yeah. Um, and, you know, or, you know, someone would say something to me kind of on the street or I was just getting a lot of hassle and it was it was just horrible. And um, I just found no peace there. And I applied for this job and I wanted it so badly. I yeah. wanted it. It was literally my dream job and I just came up and I um, I applied for it and I, I mean I wanted it so badly my mum was like really she's quite religious <laughs> and she had a whole Donegal network with a the blessed candles oh blazing <laughs> so I don't know if it's anything to do with skills or the kind yeah. of blessed candles but she had the whole Donegal all the ant the ant network I call it there's she's got uh, five sisters and they all had the, the Lourdes candles um, yeah they, they had all the Lourdes <laughs> candles lit, like blazing and um, and I got it and I, I genuinely I was so happy to get this job and it just was it was fate and I suppose if and I sometimes think that if, if what happened didn't happen and I had I didn't have go through all that kind yeah. of nonsense with all those horrible people giving me such hassle I would have still been completely wedded to the journalism yeah. thing and and so I, I'm a big big strong believer in fate so um but I came here and I um from from a quite a hostile environment I came here and I where I found could find no peace on those streets and I found my peace here 
in the classroom and with all you guys and it genuinely makes me so happy to come in here every day and it's such a contrast from you know going to work and being kind of afraid for your safety to coming in here seeing kind of people really loving you know yeah. journalism and loving stories and being really passionate about stuff and and getting really stuck into the news and it's given me that love of journalism back that maybe had been beaten down you know mm-hmm. before by by malicious people I yeah. suppose um, so after everything you've experienced would you still recommend people join the journalism industry 100% journalism is the best job in the world it's um, it's such an exciting job you meet such extraordinary people and you get to witness things you get to witness history unfold before mm-hmm. your very eyes you know almost um, well at least once a week um, what happened to me is a very kind of unique and uh, unusual thing. So what that will not happen to you guys. It'll not happen to the other people. It's just a kind of. It wasn't a one one thing. Kind of was was a very unpleasant and tragic yeah. um, event. And that's unusual. That and it won't yeah. happen again. Um, but I I absolutely loved being a journalist. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel so alive. You know, but the stories that you're doing and and being able to give a voice to people, being able to give a voice to the voiceless and shine those lights in the dark and. Mm-hmm. Um, and just help people. That's what I always wanted to do from when I was when I was a young girl. I just wanted to help people. Yeah. And journalism can definitely do that. I mean, I have written stories that have got people who were terminally ill with cancer, drugs to extend their life. I have um, raised money for like you know tens of thousands of pounds for young kids to get cancer treatment in oh, Germany amazing, or yeah. get you know different things so, uh, that they needed help yeah. with uh, they've, uh, I've got them I've helped through my journalism help that or just made a difference and you know you can make a difference in your city and your community and your in your country but you can also make a difference in in one world and yeah. one one person's wee world um, and that is just you know even so much as you know someone's got a house that's really damp and they've got breathing problems or their children are constantly getting sick and helping them sort that out by writing a story about it and bringing it to the public's attention and getting people outraged about that and that changes and then then people are act on that and help them Mm -hmm. um that changes that one person's life so it's it's such an amazing job and i do not regret a single second of it and i would 100 percent um recommend journalism as a career because you let yeah. there's no other career like it there you, you just are it's super super exciting where do you see yourself in five years <laughs> is that like a very deep question Simon? not really Fair. In, in, <laughs> in five years hopefully still here and, and teaching you guys and yeah you know I'm, i've only been here uh, i've only been here i don't see myself as a a, a paper or online journalist or or you know a, a working yeah. journalist again i've kind of been there and i've done that and i've got the t-shirt and I don't see myself going back into that arena again. Um, mm-hmm. I still do keep my hand on. I was writing for the, the Sunday Times and the Independent and, and stuff there last week. And I still do field producing um, with the TV companies. And I still write a column in the Irish News and stuff like that. But I don't see myself going back into a, yeah. into a kind of full-time journalist uh, role. I've written books and stuff too. So I kind of want to get that um, up and running as well a wee bit. But I, I love... even I've only been here a year... And my guys that were here with me uh, last year, I see them going out and working for Belfast Live yeah. and go working for Downtown Radio and yeah. for the BBC and for Belfast Telegraph. And it just makes me so proud. And I know that 
they're, they're going out there and they're having the same experience, same brilliant experiences that I had and meeting the same people and having the same excitement. You know, it sounds boring, but elections, my God, you know, having the crack at elections and and um, at political debates and, 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 and being out of security alerts and all that kind of stuff that I used to get such a buzz out of. Um, I can see them experience and I'm yeah. kind of living through them almost <laughs> and I'll the same whenever you guys leave here too I'll be I'll be keeping a close eye on you and it just makes me so proud and um, makes me so proud to be able to work with with students like yourselves that are they're so talented and uh, so passionate about journalism and watching your careers um, you know take off that's that's kind of that's my buzz these days yeah. before it was kind of you know the news and you know, and security alerts and, and, and chasing stories and stuff like that. My buzz now, I get my buzz out of watching you guys do it. From the warm <laughs> office, <laughs> when you're all outstanding out yeah. outside Stormont and the lashing rain, I'm sitting in a nice warm office seeing... So where can people find you on Twitter, Leona? You can find me at uh, Leona O'Neill 1, the, the numero 1, Leona O'Neill 1 on Twitter. <laughs> so come over and... Um, and uh, you will be delighted by my tweets on politics and my dinner and my <laughs> dog and um, my various walking through nature and, and yoga, you know, links to yeah. yoga. And, um, but in all seriousness, I, I do post a lot of stuff about journalism safety. I'm really, um, I'm really focused on journalism safety, on keeping you guys safe and, and uh, bringing in sort of research from all over the world. And um, so I post quite a lot of stuff about that, about keeping you safe and about good mental health and self-care. And, and uh, you know, and that just doesn't just apply to journalists, that applies to, to everyone, I think, you know, looking after yourself. And, you know, I, I've been through it myself, so I, um, I like to sort of share things that help me and, and that might help other people. So yeah. This was the underscore where interviewers become interviewees. I was Simon. I'm Rosa. I was Leona. Thank you so much for listening. And you can find us on Twitter. On Instagram. On Facebook. Good night. Goodbye.